I'm going to begin actually with a warning out of Hebrews chapter 3. So we will be in Joshua 11, but just a couple verses out of Hebrews 3 verse 12. It says this, uh, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil heart, unbelieving heart, I'm sorry, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I'm the exhorter today, and my prayer is that we will not, as we approach a scripture that's very difficult, be led to unbelief a little bit, um, because it is difficult and maybe even offensive to our emotions and intellect and experience Um, The text of Joshua 11, as I said, is an offensive one, and uh, it's one that I think will tempt us toward unbelief because of how God describes himself. It's just difficult to handle. If his description doesn't challenge you, or if uh, it doesn't disturb you a little bit, or maybe fill you with a sense of awe, then it's a good chance that you don't understand what's actually being said or you don't believe it, one or the other. And Joshua 11, as I've been just sitting at this week, has caused me to both fear and worship. And I've been reading, uh, which I've done before, the, the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe to my middle son. And I'm always impressed by the descriptions of Aslan as they begin to talk about that lion that they are afraid to touch and yet want to, are scared of and yet... Uh, in love with, and that's what I mean when I say fear and worship. And I say that because I've come to the conclusion, or I continue to come to the conclusion, that God is much bigger than the box that I'm trying to shove him in. And everyone has their own box, its own shape and size, that we all try to do that. Now, we don't have, I don't have a God that is tame. I don't have a God that fits conveniently into some box that I've created Uh, Or even one that reveals everything there is to know about himself, which is difficult for for a lot of us. We want to know exactly who he is. Well, we do know that he is wild and big and mysterious. And beyond that, he's revealed some but not all. And I begin this way because I know that for a lot of us, reading the Bible is difficult. And what I mean by difficult is you read and go, what is there? This is old book, whatever. And Old Testament perhaps is even more so like that, where we approach Old Testament passages as, as if they're part of kind of an irrelevant old book, and it's written by or about maybe an old version of God that's kind of come and gone, and that's, you know, that's God, DOS 1.0, we're over here in Windows 7, God. I mean, that's like the, the, the right God. He's evolved. And so with pride, what happens is we look back at people like Joshua and Israel, or maybe the Pharisees, as uncivilized, and we begin to um, pridefully think that we're better than them. Like, I wouldn't have done that. Or, worse, we arrogantly look back on God himself and judge him and go, well, I'm nicer. My God's nicer. I'm nicer than my God. Now, God is not civilized, if civilized means like potty trained, housebroken, domesticated, and not going to do anything outside of my zone of comfortability. That's not what we have. We have a very uncivilized God then, but one that is very much in control of everything. Now, if we dismiss passages like Joshua 11 as, as full of just old, archaic, antiquated descriptions, then The warning in Hebrews 3, I think, tells us is that we are going to exchange the living, sovereign creator for a dead, cute, comfortable little idol that we've created and that changes according to the wind with our changing hearts. If I don't like the God, I'll just change him and make a new one. God doesn't change. God is the same. And Joshua 11 gives us a pretty stark picture of him. And we have to remember that the book of Joshua wasn't just written um, as a report of present times. It was written after the events for future generations. So it wasn't an embedded journalist taking notes as battles were won. It was written after the fact for future generations so that they could rejoice 
that God kept his promise that he had made. But we also can't forget that it was written to clearly, sufficiently, and authoritatively reveal the character of that God who makes such promises. The one that doesn't change. So that's where we have this picture of, okay, this tells me something about God that is still true about God. Now, by way of review, um, our story began with a promise. A promise that was made before Joshua was ever born to a guy named Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. And as God led him into this land of Canaan that they're in presently, Abraham was put there, and God made this promise to him in Genesis 15. He said in verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And he's in the middle of the land. So he's telling him what's going to happen. Your kids will have this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All this land. So if you put up that map, uh, it says covenant land, I believe. Not that one. Covenant one. See that one? That one. These are the original boundaries of what the promised land was supposed to control. It's a lot bigger than what we know of Israel. In fact, this is the, the promise that was never, they never actually take all of this land. But there's a few disagreements on the actual boundaries, but generally that's what it is. That's a lot of land to take. You see in Joshua, they never take it. In the rest of the Bible, they never take that land. But that was the land that was promised to them back in Genesis 15. So Joshua, though, is divinely appointed to lead in fulfilling that promise, possessing the land that was promised. All that. Now, go back to the uh, campaign map. The other one. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, just to summarize what's happened in the campaign, Joshua started over here, right? They came across the Jordan River, and they made a little monument at Gilgal to signify what had happened at the Jordan River, and God had preserved, and it began the taking of the, all this promised land. Okay? They already had the land over here, and they took the tribes with them over and said, yeah, you can go back with your families in ten years, Leave your kids and wives at home and come with us. And they did. First battle they do is Jericho, which is just south. They defeat that. Then they go over to uh, Ai or Ai and Bethel, and they defeat that. They have a little celebration up in Shechem up here, right? And then they go back down, and Gibeon comes and makes a treaty that includes basically all of this land over here. And so they basically take this, that's a central campaign. It's kind of a plateau area, a big wedge right in the middle of the promised land. Well, then they hear about it, specifically this king down here in Jerusalem. He gets all his buddies and says, hey, come over me, and actually even some guys even down south here, and says, come up and fight, and they all go fight at Gibeon and get wiped out. That was the southern campaign of Joshua 10. And so he went through, Joshua did, and went through Gibeon all the way down through here and took the rest of the cities and others. Now they're at the point where they're probably back at Gilgal, which is their home base of operations, and another king hears about their success in the south and says, hmm, hey guys, let's get together and go defeat. So basically what happens is all the kings in all this area gather together to attack Joshua. And so again, other than Jericho and I, most of the battles now are coming to them and they're about to take the northern campaign or the north of um, the promised land. And that was Joshua chapter 11. And this pretty much is going to end most of the conquest, the larger conquest of the land. So we're in Joshua chapter 11, and here's what it says. When Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Shinroth, and in the lowland, and in the Nafoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites to the hill country, and the Hivites underneath Hermon on the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim, to fight against Israel. And the waters of Merim are way up north 
um, near Galilee. Now, so Jabin, the king of Hazar, hears this report of what's going on, and he collects what amounts to the Legion of Doom to take on Joshua. You guys know the Justice League, right? Legion of Doom. If you don't, you're missing out. It's glorious. So he hears about this campaign, and he gathers everyone with him, and they agree to join forces in this huge army. And it is equipped with state-of-the-art stuff, because chariots, horses, it is a gigantic uh, horde of men. And it's interesting that the writer spends uh, an, or seemingly an inordinate amount of time detailing the specifics of this group of people. And he goes in and he describes names of kings, he names tribes, he names ethnic groups, he names geographic areas. And you're like, why are you spending so much time on this? And the reason I ask that question is because we know, if you've read ahead, which I have, you know that Joshua is ultimately successful. And this is a report written after that success, so the guy who is writing knows that they were ultimately successful. So they very well easily could have just written, if they just wanted a report of what happened, a nice, concise, one-sentence summary of, they were all taken. The north came against them, and they took them, and we defeated them. That's it. So clearly, and specifically because you see in verse 4, he wants to make a different point and emphasize something differently. And so in verse 4, he says, or compares this number of troops to sands on the seashore. That's a lot, okay? If you ever picked up a pile of sand just in your hand, there are millions and millions of little particles on there. And so the sands on the seashore is just to give this vast incredible huge number and the sand happens to be equipped with cruise missiles and tanks okay so you have this incredible force and the intent of the writers to say the enemy is completely overwhelming the enemy is huge there's no way from a fleshly perspective joshua should be victorious against a group of people that are numerically and technologically way beyond this nomadic tribe that has had some successes up to this point, but they can't compare with this force. It is completely overwhelming. Now, it seems to me that if this is a picture, this whole book is a picture of our life in Christ, this picture of sanctification and our battles against sin, if you will, that our view of the power of sin, your view of the power of a sin, the power of sin to kill, the power of sin to destroy, the power of sin to infect and overwhelm you in your life, whatever sin that happens to be, your view of it will determine, I believe, your view of your need for sanctification, but also your view of how you're going to, like, the means of it. And what I believe the overwhelming nature of sin, the honest nature of sin should lead us to is to see and seek the supremacy of God and how amazing His power is, but also how needed it is. And I do believe that the precursor to self-righteousness, the precursor to I can just grin and bear it, white knuckle, and I can defeat my sin on my own, do good, and at least more good than evil, that is actually the result of not truly understanding sin. And not fully understanding what sin does, that even in doing good, sin infects that so you become prideful about the good that you're doing. Sin is pervasive. It is everywhere. And if you don't see the overwhelming nature of it, you will not see the need for and the power of the cross of Jesus to redeem you. And so I think this overwhelming nature is what he's trying to put forward. So in the face of impossible odds, God steps in and he speaks to Joshua about his power and his control over the situation. In verse 6 he says, after seeing this huge force, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, implying that he is. Okay, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim, and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mizrepeth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. Colon, here's what he did. 
he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So God, in seeing this force, desires Israel to be secure in him alone. He doesn't want them to be confident in their strength. In fact, he probably wants them to not be confident in the strength. That's why he puts this huge force. And he doesn't want them to be fearful in this huge force. He wants them to be confident in him alone. And so the very thing that the enemy might want to boast about, which is their awesome horse fleet and their chariots, which would be like tanks to us, he says, I'm going to destroy these things. And he guarantees that the horses of the enemies will be hamstrung, which what that is is a tendon behind the hind legs of horses. And if you cut that, be like cutting your you know, heel tendon, they're obviously incapacitated and, and wouldn't be a force at all. And so it's noted that God doesn't say or should be noted that he doesn't generally say, hey, don't worry, Joshua, uh, you'll take them. He doesn't just give a general sense of conquest. He's very specific to point out the very thing that Joshua and Israel are probably scared of, that they most fear. And the reason why he does that is because fear is the enemy to true worship. Fear, especially fear of men, but fear is the greatest enemy to the worship of God. Or I should say, fear of stuff in creation is the very thing that keeps us away from fearing the one thing that we should, which is God. And you think about it for a second. When anyone has a fear, when they, they kind of create a personal hell for themselves, like they fear that this hell will become a reality, and so they create saviors to save them from whatever hell they might actually want to avoid. Now, fear of, for example, poverty. Fear of poverty leads people to worship oftentimes money, not to have certain things. Fear of loneliness leads up to worship relationships a lot of times. Fear of disrespect leads men to abuse women. And fear of not being loved often leads women to tolerate abusive men. Fear of losing face with people where you don't get their approval or regard is the reason why we lie. We want people to think better of us. And so we lie. And fear of having to deal with certain pain, whether it be past, present, whatever, often leads a lot of people to be saved by indulging in food, in drink, or in substance like drugs. It's all rooted in fear. And when God says, look, there's only one thing worthy of fearing here, Joshua, and it ain't what you see. I don't care how daunting the enemy might be, you are to fear God alone. He is the only thing, only person, only one worthy of fearing and worship. And so in the midst of this, this incredibly fearful situation where he doesn't know what's going to happen and it appears like they're going to die, God says, don't fear, I'm here I'm faithful, and I am sovereign. And you go, what the snarf does that mean? Right? We throw out the word sovereign like, you know, well, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. And we don't take the time really to explain maybe what that means. So I want to do that briefly. The doctrine of sovereignty of God is mysterious. We'll start there. And by mysterious, I mean uh, it's not fully comprehensible. But a simple definition is this by one theologian that I'm grateful for. And that is, sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. Okay, that seems simple enough. Well, let's break it down. First, we all need to understand that God, the Lord, is in total control of the world he created. Total control. Now, what does that mean? First of all, God's not part of creation. He created it. You have creator and creation. He's not part of the creation. He's in charge of all of it. Total control of the thing he's not necessarily a part of, but he does enter into. That world includes nature, everything in nature. It includes people. It includes history. It includes culture. It includes everything. He is in control of all of it. Now, the Bible teaches, this is hard for us, that nothing good or evil. Nothing good or evil happens apart from God's direction, from God's ordination, whatever word you'd like to use that makes you feel comfortable. But nothing good or evil happens apart from God's direction. Nothing is outside of his control, whether it's the birth of a baby or the rebirth of a Christian 
whether it's the death of a soldier somewhere in the world in a war, or it's the death of a sparrow in the forest. God is in control of all of it, big and small, whatever you might consider big or small. And what this means, though, mysteriously, and I say it's a mystery because it's difficult, and that's like an easy way of saying that's hard. It's a mystery, okay? It's a mystery that a perfectly good, perfectly gracious, perfectly just God purposes all things. And that means all, okay? I looked up in the Greek. It means all. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think it means all, okay? All things, and if it's all things, even evil, to demonstrate his worthiness and glory. How does it work out? I'm not sure. All I know is that my God's big enough to be in total control of all things. Imagine a God not in control of evil. Scary. Second, sovereignty also means that God not only has the power, he's that big, right? He not only has the power to do this, but by nature of being God, the creator, the one that gives life, the one that declares what is, is, by nature of being God the creator, he possesses the supreme authority and right to do so. He has the authority and the right to control because it is his creation. Now the thing about that that's interesting for us is that by the fact that we're created, it seems like as created people, we suddenly have this sense of entitlement like God owes us something. Well, you created me, now you owe. Do we understand that he doesn't really owe us diddly? He owes us nothing. He's not obligated. He's obligated only by the promises he makes dependent upon himself. So he doesn't owe us anything. We breathe because he says breathe. He's in control of all things, sustains all things, and if he ever stops, it will all fall apart. The sun comes up because God constantly sustains that the world continues to go around, not just because. And he is the only one with the authority to do that. He is the one that declared the world good. It wasn't good just because he created it. He defined it as that's good and that's bad. Why? Because I've said so. I'm God. It's amazing how we don't want God to actually be God. If you think about it. So he has the authority to do so. He's the one and only God. There's not a bunch of other gods out there that he's in charge of, just the bigger one. No, he's the only God. And he is the Lord, the only one worthy of worship and devotion, the one that we have the ability to, but not the right to question. We can throw all kinds of questions at God because he's given us the ability to do that. That does not mean we have the right to question him. Now, God's power and authority in this sense should lead us to worship, but honestly, it doesn't always. It doesn't always. In fact, sometimes it leads us the opposite direction. And even, I think, a, a solid, and there's guys that write volumes on God's sovereignty, just books upon books of like, what do you mean God's in control of everything, okay? Even if um, you have a good solid definition, that doesn't save us sometimes from becoming very oversimplistic about it. And what happens is the sovereignty of God is not supposed to create apathy in us where we foolishly go, well, you know, since God is in control of everything, why should I do anything? Which is pretty common when you start talking about sovereignty. So if we take Joshua as an example of someone put in a situation that's insurmountable, impossible, and God says, I'm in control of all things, don't worry. We see that a solid understanding of that power and authority, of that sovereignty, should create confidence in us. And it should lead us to actually have effort to the point of even facing our fears as we know God is the one we're trusting to defeat whatever it is. Sovereignty, in other words, shouldn't paralyze us or, or restrain us in some way. It actually should be an empowerment and a liberation to live freely, dependent upon God, trusting that no matter what situation there is, good, bad, or indifferent, he's in control. Doesn't mean we'll be comfortable. Doesn't mean we'll enjoy it. But we know 
that God is big enough to purpose it for good, even if he doesn't tell us how. Now, having received divine assurance from God here, in spite of what he sees, in spite of what he feels, in spite of what he knows, because he's like, dude, we can't beat chariots, we got no chariots, he moves immediately in faith in a surprise attack, and he routes the enemy. Verse 10 says this, And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction, and there was none left that breathed. It says that. We should, you should, that should challenge you. And he burned Hazor with fire, and all the cities of those kings, and all their kings Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds, mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So in Joshua, we see a servant, what I think is an ideal servant, and how he's supposed to act. It is a type, if you will, pointing towards Christ. And he, a servant, the ideal servant, where I myself have failed many times. Christ never failed this way. But a servant who faithfully and fearlessly obeys. Throughout the battles, the emphasis is never on like Joshua really whipped out some awesome sword skills and just like really took these guys and he was amazing in the way he strategized. It's always about he obeyed, he obeyed, he obeyed. And I pray that, honestly, by the time I come to the end of my life, and I hope this is your desire, that there's a verse 15 at my funeral. A verse 15 that describes me as it describes Joshua, where I say, just as the Lord commanded his servant, Sam did. Without excuse, without complaint, without arguing. He left nothing undone that God had commanded him to do. He may only command me to do things for another year of my life and take me home. I don't know. But until that time, I pray that I'll be faithful to do what he's told me to do. And that's not really a mystery, a lot of those things. A simple list, he's told me to love him. He's told me to love my neighbor. He's told me to love my bride. He's told me to love my children. It's pretty obvious what I have to do on some really simple levels. He told me to lead a church, but he didn't tell everyone to do that. And he may someday tell me to stop. I just want to do what he's telling me to do. And get done at the end of my life, and my kids and my wife go, he did what Jesus told him to do. That's, that's a capstone for me. That's enough. You're not going to be measured as Joshua is not measured by a man. Look at all the things you did, the battles you won. You're not going to be measured by the houses you build, the stuff you collect, the number of people you make happy. That's not what you're going to be measured by. You're going to be measured simply by one thing. By one thing. Did I place my trust in the obedience of Jesus? His obedience to the Father and His Spirit working through me for my obedience. That's what you're going to be measured on. Did I place my trust in Jesus and how he obeyed the Father and depend upon his spirit to work through me for my obedience? Because that's the only way obedience actually comes. By alone, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. So not only do we see, though, the devotion of a man, an ideal servant to God's command, this is a hard part. We see the devotion of God to his own holiness. This is the beginning of the disturbing part. See, Joshua's devotion amounts to taking all the land held by the northern kings and then devoting all those people to destruction. 
And so we're not mistaken about exactly what happens. You have verse 11 and verse 14 as these really nice bookends, which say, they did not leave anyone who breathed. Which, if you're not sure what that means, in following God's command, he kills everybody. This is history. This is not like, what do you mean he killed everybody, metaphorically? No, he killed everybody. It's a hard scripture. And this is, Joshua 10 and 11 are, they're not really graphic, but this is some of the most um, violent passages of scripture, the, the, the passages that people go, well, that's God 1.0. We like Jesus 2.0 over here. That's God, right? Loving, gracious, meek, and mild. There is no difference. There is no difference. How do you reconcile a God of love with this? And this is where we go like, how can God be loving and do these things? And those are honest questions. And we fight this because emotionally we go, ugh. I mean, it just repulses me to think about that. As it should, because quite frankly, it's a result of the fall, as all death is. It should offend you. But what you can't allow is that emotional repulsion, that emotion to govern to the extent where you begin to judge God and you go a step closer to unbelief. You go, okay, the Bible says what it says, and it's difficult. God does love. God is love. And God does love us in our sin. The Bible says, when we were sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for people to be clean. But let me be clear God loves us in our sin, but not before He loves Himself in His holiness. God loves us in our sin, but not before He loves Himself in His holiness. That's why Jesus came. That's why He had to die, because God loves His holiness that much. And it's that important. But wait, it gets even more disturbing. Okay, Verse 16. And this is where your mind's going to go, well, that's Old Testament. You want to just kind of Push that aside. This can't mean what it means. They got to twist it around to make it easier to swallow. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be easier to swallow. It's tough stuff to chew. You got to chew on it a long time before you swallow it or you'll choke. Read verse 16. It says this So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all of their kings and struck them and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And here comes verse 20. For, which is all the battles that came about. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. If that doesn't like, what? When you read that, it should stop you. Because does that really say what it says? Similar to Pharaoh, who was the leader in the Exodus, leader of Egypt, who wouldn't let the people go, we see that the hearts of the Canaanites are described as being hardened, actively hardened by God. So that they will fight so that they will not receive mercy, so that they will die. Disturbed yet? It should shake you. And as they die, God is not showing mercy to them because mercy is, I'm not going to give you the judgment you deserve. But don't think that God hasn't shown mercy to them up to this point. In fact, he's shown mercy particularly to the Canaanites for many, many years. These guys were not only guilty before God, they were very much guilty before men. If you read the introduction to that study guide, and I I believe I preached on it earlier, 
the Canaanites were pretty perverse, whacked out, evil culture. And Abraham was told in Genesis 15, back when he first got the promise, he said, I'm going to give this land to your offspring, but not right away. Your people are going to go into a foreign land, which was Egypt, and they're going to stay there for 400 years. Here's what he says in verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, come back to Canaan, for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to let them sin a little bit longer. And any time he allows them, any day, any minute, any second, he allows them to sin longer is mercy. Any time he's not giving them exactly what they deserve is mercy. So he did that for 400 years. And he said the same thing to Pharaoh, which is interesting. In, you know, he didn't do three plagues. He didn't do five plagues. He didn't do nine. He did ten plagues. Well, why ten? Well, he tells Pharaoh directly in Exodus chapter 9. He says in verse 15, For by now, speaking to Pharaoh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Some translations say annihilated. I could have done it like by the third plague. I could have wiped you out completely. I don't need ten. And he goes further and says, But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that the, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God does it. God's purpose for showing mercy, for showing grace, for loving, for hardening, is to demonstrate His power and to proclaim His name and glory over all. That is His purpose. God, we see, is sovereign even over the sinful choices of men that they willingly make but they're not willing to make them, right? Are they? Men, according to Scripture, are held responsible for every choice that they make. And they make them in according to their sinful desires because they have a sinful nature that they inherited from their sinful daddy when they were born that happened in the fall. Okay? Now, God hardened the hearts of these Canaanites just as he hardened Pharaoh. But he didn't initially make them hard. That happened in the garden. After the fall, there is no such thing as a soft heart. Do you understand that? There are only hard hearts. That's it. That's all God has to work with in everyone. There is no such thing as a soft heart. Because of sin, all men resist God. And Scripture is pretty clear about the condition of men. It says that they are dead in their sin. They are hostile toward God. They are enemies, refusing to seek God, refusing to know the truth. But they, in fact, actually know it and exchange it for a lie. That's how he describes the hardness of men's hearts. And the Bible uses the heart, as Jesus does, as the description of everything a man is, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, everything. It's the center of life. And so Jesus, in Matthew 15, said, man, out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Out of heart comes those things. Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, also said that the heart, in verse 17, 9, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And just so we didn't misunderstand, Ezekiel the prophet described the heart as a stone, which is pretty hard, I'm told. Men's hearts are already hard. So Scripture teaches here that God makes the hard Canaanite heart harder. Okay? He's not making the soft heart like suddenly hard. He's making the hard heart even harder. He makes it heavier. He increases what it seems their resistance to God so that they come to battle. Why is this? But here's what I think. Men, though totally sinful, are not absolutely evil in every way. They don't do the worst they could possibly do, though they do 
all things sinfully. Think sinfully, emote sinfully, decide sinfully, okay? But they don't do, not everyone's a Hitler, okay? And even Hitler could have been worse, as hard as that is to imagine. So we don't do absolutely everything evil. So what I believe, in other words, if these men were left to themselves, they probably would have gotten to a point where they surrendered like Gibeon. They probably would have had... And Gibeon, that example, is... Because they deceived. It's not like they came and said, Oh, we want to worship you too. They came and deceived. Okay, let's be clear what exactly is going on. They're sinning for their treaty. So what you have is an example of a bad person doing a good thing in the same way that many people do. We see people do good things apart from faith in God all the time. What we will call good things. Sometimes people do good to feel good themselves. Sometimes people do what we call good things because they don't want to face the consequences of doing bad. But in the end, we can say what I believe that any good that does not proceed from faith cannot in any way glorify God and is therefore sinful. Isaiah 64.6 talks about good works and says that our good works are no better than filthy rags or polluted garments. And Romans 14.23 says quite plainly that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I believe that they would have surrendered at some point like any terrorist has a breaking point, Right? But that doesn't make them switch teams. Just because they give in to what is totally painful, because that's just enough, doesn't mean they suddenly like, and I totally believe everything that you believe now. They've given up. And so like Pharaoh, I think Pharaoh would have broken at three if God would have let him break at three. He would have let the people go early. But he says, nope, I'm hardening you for the purpose of proclaiming my name and it's going to take this long, so I'm going to increase your resistance. These guys may choose not to die, which would be the choice, but not because they would be choosing to love God. They're just choosing not to die. And like all men, I believe they would have remained rebellious to God unless God not only shows them mercy by not killing them, but also grace by saving them and changing their hearts. So for one, he fairly gives, I believe, what men justly deserve. The consequences for their sin, what we all deserve, even more so. And for the other, he gives men what they don't rightly deserve. So for Jabin and the Canaanites, and for Pharaoh, he hardened their hearts to resist and fight against him. And for Joshua and Israel, he actively softens their hearts that they might worship him and fight for him. God is sovereign over both for the secret purposes of his plan to ultimately bring glory to himself, to proclaim his name, and to demonstrate his power. And quite honestly, if you don't like that, because it says what it says, then quite frankly, you don't know or believe in the God of the Bible. It says what it says. We'll end with a conclusion which I think brings it full circle and shows us the beauty of the cross. The chapter ends with a, a comprehensive summary, I think, of what takes us back to where the story started in Numbers 13. So verse 21 to the end says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. And Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only Gaza, or Gaza and Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. And Gath is the home of a couple parents who produced a son one day named Goliath. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So to close us out, the writer ends with a description of the conquest by mentioning these guys, the Anakim. 
And initially, when the 12 men first went in to spy at the land under Moses, they were just on the cusp of the promised land, having gone around the wilderness for a while. 12 guys go in, and 10 of them return with a faithless report. And you can read it in Numbers 13. And among other things, here's what they reported. We came to the land which you sent us, Moses. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they brought some big grapes and stuff. Verse 28, however, well, side note, Moses, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are very large, and worse than that, besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And that report creates fear in Israel to the extent where they want to go back to Egypt and even stone their leadership and become rebellious and results in that entire generation not being allowed to go in the promised land and wandering for 40 years till they all die. The Anakim were a race of giants so big that for these guys, their presence very irrationally caused Israel to believe that they were in fact bigger than God. Now this is the God, if you look at the story of the Exodus and, and through Numbers of Deuteronomy, Time after time, God demonstrating his power over and over again in amazing signs, and they freaked out with some big guys. Sin's very irrational. And they ended up ignoring God's word who said, take the land, it's yours. You've already won before you started. You just have to go. They denied God's word. They ignored God's promises, and they believed the promise of sin. That said, quite frankly, Disbelieving God's word, rebellion is safer and wiser, which is the exact same mistake that Adam and Eve made in the garden. It's a fitting end for the war, which Joshua 11 kind of is the last part of the war. It's a fitting end where God pretty much declares, I'm bigger than the biggest thing in this land. I told you so. So, with this passage and with your faith in God, know that you're going to be tempted by fears into unbelief. Do not give in to your fear. God is bigger. Way bigger than you could ever imagine. Don't be afraid about what you know about men, even your own heart. And I also say, don't be afraid about what you don't know about God and His mystery. Hold on tightly to what he's revealed, to what we know about our own heart and about his heart, the heart of God. We know this, that when men chose to disobey God, the world fell, but God didn't. Okay? And in God not falling, he remained unchanging, still perfectly just, still perfectly loving, still per perfectly faithful, still perfectly in control. And his plan, before the world was even created, was to save his people and restore the relationship that they threw off. And his plan included sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die as our substitute, which, even in the brokenness of men, would require employing evil men to accomplish his purpose catch that? It will require him being in control of these evil men to even accomplish the death of his son. So dare I say God ordained, even caused men to deny Jesus that he might be killed because he had a greater plan. And his greater plan was his glory through our redemption. Always committed to his glory. His culture didn't believe Jesus. His disciples didn't believe him. The government didn't believe him, but God was in control the entire step of the way. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. Acts chapter 4, if you don't believe me, verse 27 says this. Peter preaching, I believe his second or third sermon says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your 
plan had predestined to take place. That's a big, stinking God. And it brings me comfort and confidence and freedom to know that He loves me and that His love casts out any other fear I might have other than the fear and the reverence and love I have for Him. So we may not have an answer to every why question here, but you can't ignore what the Bible says in that verse 20 passage. It is difficult and hard and you need to chew on it. And we don't have, like I said, every answer to why, but we do have a God who has revealed Himself as one who hates sin, one who is merciful to us despite our sin, and one who's given us a new heart to replace that stone one of flesh so that I can trust that He is God and that I am not. And so as you declare today, coming up here, know that as you take communion, you declare trust in the Word of God even in those things you don't fully comprehend. That Jesus loves you, this you know, because the Bible tells you so. And sometimes that's all you have. But it's enough. Let's pray. Father, I am in awe of how big you are and how little I am. I pray that you will help me in my unbelief. You'll help me with the difficult things. That Holy Spirit, you will teach us about your word, yourself, knowing that there's so much mystery there, but there is much that you have revealed. Help us, Father, to submit to your word, to be governed by your word, to fear you and your word, that we might not fear or be governed by anything in creation. May you be glorified by how we sing, by how we give, by how we stand boldly for what the Bible says in all its mystery and wonder. In the blood of your Son, we depend and we pray and we live. Amen.